The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Do you think you really understand leadership and what the purpose of the leader is and what their job really is and the best ways for them to succeed? Well, our guest today is going to turn that upside down and try to prove that you probably have it completely backwards and maybe even inside out. Heather Christie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. It's great to be on. So what you've said so far is quite fascinating. It's contrarian and different than really most anything I've heard other people say about leadership. And I'm anxious for you to share that. So thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Well, I think, uh, you know, Joel, you're all about leverage, right? The inside track. You're about helping people to excel by finding better, faster, more efficient ways to do things, right? Absolutely. I'm with you on that. And I think when we think about leverage, anyone out there who's working with a team, really, we have some opportunities that are potentially bigger than you can even imagine. And... I'm going to reference some statistics that just came in from the Gallup poll, and I'm going to start with the good news, okay? So the most recent Gallup poll results came out in fourth quarter last year in 2018, and their employee engagement right now is at an 18-year high. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's really exciting. And yet before you go and celebrate this (laughs) too much, I want to tell you what that looks like. So right now... 34% of our employees are engaged. And that's that's your high 34%. So I just want you to sit with that for a moment. And for those of you listening, I want you to think about your team. Most everyone, when they hear those statistics, they say, Oh, but not my team. Right. Right. Of course. If about one in three of your employees are engaged, what do you think that's doing to your productivity? Well, number one, it's terrible, but what's it doing to the third person? I mean, the two people could disengage the third person, I imagine, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you just a couple more breakdowns, and then I'm going to take it to the leadership level, okay? So 34% who are engaged, these are the people who actually really want to come to work. They are bought into the mission of the company. They are committed to doing a great job. They'll come in early, they'll stay late, but they're really committed to doing a great job. The next category are those who are disengaged. That's 53%. Oh my. But disengaged is different from actively disengaged. So actively disengaged is at 13%. Those are the people who hate their jobs. 
These are the people who are more likely to steal from their employer. They're the ones who are actively undermining those who are engaged. Okay, so we've got 13%. So, and I want you to, as I'm sharing these numbers, just imagine for a moment that these numbers are somewhere close to what's happening in your organization if you're listening in, okay? So you would think you would be most worried about those 13% actively disengaged. I'm actually a little bit more concerned about the 53% disengaged because the disengaged people are categorized as those who are satisfied, but they're not cognitively or emotionally connected to the work that they're doing. So another way to say this, they're showing up to do the least amount of work, put in the least amount of effort to be able to still get a paycheck. They're flying under the radar. And a lot of times these people can manage up pretty well, but they're just a nightmare to work with day in and day out. So it's escalating that feeling of disengagement. Okay. So it makes me think a lot of things, work issues aside, it makes me kind of sad for our society that we've got 13% of the people who have a job that just absolutely hate their job, get up every day miserable. And they're probably not that much happier in their life, by the way. You know, I, I mean, if they're miserable right. at work, if they don't bother to go get a new job, what kind of people are there? Probably very miserable people. So yeah. that's very sad. The 53, that's half the people don't like their job or are couldn't care about their job. That, that also is a shame because they spend a lot of time doing it. That's right. So can you imagine day in and day out going to a job where your initiative was to do the least amount of work to not get fired? Yeah. Well, it's so disempowering, right? So, okay, let me give you, now I promised I was going to give you some stats that related to leadership because I dug into this report. I don't know how many hundreds of pages this report is, but I wanted to say, okay, what can we do with the information that's in here? How do we tip the scales on this engagement issue, right? Um, So I found that the highest percentage of engagement among employees is among managers and executives. So you think, wow, well, Thank goodness for that, right? <laughs> Ready for it? Drum roll. Drum roll. 38% yeah. of managers and executives are considered engaged. That's all? That's it. So why do you think we only have 34% of the rest of the employees, right? Because now, there's a cascade did they, effect. Did they break these numbers out by very, very large companies, medium-sized companies? I mean, what are the numbers for the very, very large companies? Well, okay, so I don't have the report right in front of me for the very, very large companies, but what I can tell you is engagement is the lowest at companies that have more than a thousand employees. Yeah. Okay, so that's the one stat that I pulled out there related to size of employer. But I'm telling you, Joel, that the percentages don't vary significantly enough by size to say this is just a big company issue versus a small company issue. You know, it brings up a couple of other issues. Number one, large companies very much survive on their own momentum. I mean, it's amazing to me that some of our largest companies manage to get anything done in the course of a day because they waste a lot of money. They have unhappy employees. They've got this problem, that problem. Very different problems. Little companies have all different kinds of problems. Their problems are different. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a hard time getting resources and things. These giant companies with all these resources, is there anything that could be done to fix this situation? Because this is really, it's terrible for our country. But here's the great news. This this is where I actually get really excited about the opportunity here. 
you absolutely have a competitive advantage if you really get dialed into and you understand the cause of this disengagement. And I firmly believe the cause is that we are not pouring into and developing our managers. So I mentioned that 38% of managers and executives are engaged. That's broken down just a little bit further. 45% of executives are engaged and only 29% of managers are engaged. Now, these managers, think about this in the big context here. 29% of our managers, they're the ones who are managing our frontline customer-facing employees, right? Our individual contributors. And we've got a 29% engagement rate. All we have to do is focus there on the managers. But when you think about companies and where they invest their resources in leadership development, they're typically focused on those that are either designated as high potentials or they're focused on those at the more senior levels, right? Director, senior director, but more likely VP, SVP, right? If we were to invest some of those resources at the level of manager, because think about this, when somebody's first promoted to manager, they usually get there because they've done a good job being a doer. But now as a manager, their role has completely shifted to that of leader. You've right, got to learn right. how to be a leader. And most companies, and, and other than the very large companies that have dedicated resources and leadership development, and even many of these I've seen fail at the manager level, but they're not pouring into that level of leadership. And there is a direct correlation. They call it the cascade effect. Think about this, Joel. If you have a manager who's disengaged, how likely are you to be excited to come to work every day? That's the whole problem is that uh, they personally, they're not excited. And then their lack of enthusiasm rubs off on other people. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do the least you can, I'm going to do the least I can. Absolutely. It's contagious. Yeah. Yeah. Because why would I want to work harder than my manager? Why would I want to be more positive and more excited? I mean, if my manager is visibly showing up just to collect a paycheck, that's just not a great role model for me as an employee. You know what this kind of makes me think? If people are kind of robotic in their attitude and they don't care and they're not enthusiastic, you know, you can understand why companies would want to move to artificial intelligence and just using computers and driverless cars Mm -hmm. and and machines that aren't going to talk back and give them a lot of lip and give them some attitude. I mean, in a certain way, you can sort of understand why management might want to move in that direction, right? Absolutely. Absolutely they do. Because you think about the customer-facing employee is being led by somebody who is probably fairly negative. And so the chances of us getting it right there are just so slim. There's just not a lot of leverage there. Right. And what is it that these employees want? So I found I found a Harvard Business Review article a few years back that really looked into and studied and analyzed where we found higher levels of engagement. And there is a direct correlation between managers who are great at coaching and developing others. Their employees are much more highly engaged. So that's the angle that I've found is we're not teaching these managers to be great coaching leaders and coaching leadership. I mean, look, it's everywhere now, right? Everyone's a coach these days, but a coaching leadership style is an empowering type of leadership style, right? Describe that. A little. What does that look like? What, okay. Cause it's different than what, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the exercises I do with our clients, which is really powerful is I help them to understand the distinction between 
managing, mentoring, and coaching. And if you've never really broken that down for yourself before, right? If, if for those who haven't had formal training in coaching leadership, what's happening, Joel, unfortunately, is they're really misusing this amazing leadership style called coaching. So you can use the air quotes, right? We need to coach someone because they've got poor performance. And then all of a sudden, it turns into this disciplinary action. But if you look at the distinctions... Every one of those leadership styles, by the way, are needed for different reasons, right? You need to be a great mentor and teach people how to develop their skills, right? So there's always a need for mentorship. Managing is really about directing. It's about telling someone what to do, when to do it. And when you don't have time, you do need to manage. You need to get in there and say, hey, I need this by this time when there's an urgency. But coaching is around taking a little bit more time and using inquiry and a really powerful inquiry to have people start to develop that critical thinking capacity. Like I remember when I was in law school and we first were learning through the Socratic method, it really is sort of a coaching methodology, right? It's asking questions and getting someone to think for themselves rather than just giving them the answer. Does that make sense? You know, so what is really the difference between coaching and mentoring? Because those okay. seem, they seem, even as I sit and listen to you, they sound very similar. Okay. All right. So think about your mentor. Who is it who comes to mind when you think about your most powerful mentor you've had? Okay. I have somebody in mind. You got someone in mind. Okay. Yeah. I want you to think specifically about the lessons that they shared with you. So the mentor's role is to pour in, to take all of the knowledge that I've learned and to pour into you in many different ways, right? I can do it by sharing stories. I can do it by showing you. I can do it by telling you, here's the way that it looks. Here's the big picture. Here's the strategy all the way down to the why we do things, right? So can you get that idea of the kinds of things that your mentor shared, things that you know today that you would otherwise never have known because you learned from that person's experience? Yes, Right. So it's kind of, you have leverage in learning from someone's experience as a mentor. When it comes to coaching, the coach's role is not to just share their experience through story. The coach's role is to say, I honor you, Joel, that you're the expert in your world and in your life. And I know sometimes you're not asking yourself the right questions to be able to get past whatever your obstacle is. So what I'm going to do is rather than telling you or directing you or guiding you or sharing my experience, I'm going to ask you, Joel, what do you think you should do? Mm. Does that make sense? You help bring out of somebody their own thing. Yes, that is exactly right. So as you can tell, there are definitely times where that won't work in a given situation in leadership. You need to actually transfer knowledge sometimes. But there are so many times, think about this, an employee comes to your office, knocks on the door. Hey, can I get a quick second? You say yes. And they say, I've got this issue right now with this client and they want X, Y, Z. What do I do? Most managers, if they're not trained, will tell the employee what to do rather than saying, well, let's think about this for a minute. Yeah. What's the real problem here? Now, it takes some time, Joel. It takes an absolute intentional commitment to do this because the manager knows the answer, right? And so it would be so much faster, so much more efficient, so much easier (laughs) to give the answer. But what are you doing? What are you training that employee? If they come to you and you answer their every question, what have you trained them? Well, basically you've stunted their growth and you've taught them to just knock on your door. 
Yes. They don't think because I'm right. the authority. So what's that hidden message that I'm sending to that employee? That if they I, don't have it and that I do. Yeah, or Yeah. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You don't, you don't have the capability of answering these questions for yourself. So what have I also done to position myself? You need me for everything. So please keep interrupting me. Yeah. You know, and there are a lot of people who put a big fence around themselves to make themselves locked into their job. They don't want to have the chance. You know, what you're describing, I love this coaching thing. I mean, the line between mentor and coach, you did a good job of describing it, but they blend together a lot. I think that the same personality that's a good mentor is probably also a good coach. Because Sometimes. All right. Well, maybe sometimes, but yeah. it's a personality. Like to be a coach, what you're really talking about is you have to be interested in your people. I yes. mean, you have to care. If you don't care, there's no chance that you're going to take interest in helping people grow and be better and ask these kinds of questions. You're absolutely right. You have to be vested in their development. Yeah, you have to care. Absolutely. You have to care so much that you're willing to intentionally sit on that answer and not share it so that you can allow them to have that light bulb moment and figure it out for themselves. And there's no greater reward, quite frankly, than when you work with somebody and you ask them those questions and then all of a sudden they see it. It was right there before them. But you know, I think about this book by Dale Carnegie, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. I don't know if you've ever read that one. No, not that one. In the early chapters, like chapter one or chapter two, one of the things he says, I think it's so brilliant. He talks about the fact that most oftentimes we're not clear enough on the problem to be able to find the solution. So when an employee comes to you and they can't figure out what to do, nine times out of 10, it's because they haven't really identified the true problem. What's at the root cause of the problem? So if you're a great coach, you're asking a lot of questions so that they can identify what that problem is. Cause you know, what's on the other side of the problem all the time is the solution. Sure. But a great mentor may not ask that question. A great mentor would say, well, here's what I did when I was presented with that problem and mm. here's how I overcame it. Oh yeah. Do you see what I mean? I, so I see the difference. They're distinct. Yeah. They're definitely different, but I would think that many times a great mentor also cares about the development of the person they're mentoring yeah. They would invest in the questions and the kind of the development and the growth of that person. Yes, absolutely. It's an interesting distinction that you make though. Yeah. And I would say that the best mentors are the best coaches because they have that ability to move back and forth of when do I need to share something from my background and experience that will really give this person leverage? And when do I need to really, really be a stand for them that they've got the answers inside and I can draw them you know, draw the answers out of you. So you have to know when. So at these companies uh, where there are successful situations, I would imagine that the engagement rate is enormously higher because they're surrounded by people that they feel care about them. Yeah. It's not a mechanical relationship. They're not just there for the paycheck. They feel like they're growing uh, intellectually, emotionally, and whatever other kinds of ways. What's your experience? Well, one of the things we know for a fact is that our top performers if they're not being developed, they're gone. More than money. More than money. They want growth. They are striving for growth. But what we don't really pay as much attention to is the fact that everyone wants growth. You know, employees show up, they actually want to do a good job, but if they're faced with an environment that's somehow negative or disengaged, 
it's so easy. That really is contagious. So it's so easy to just go negative in a negative environment. That takes zero effort. It does, however, take a very, a tremendous amount of intentional effort to stay positive in the face of a negative environment, right? In the face of a negative boss. That's one of the hardest things to overcome. So what does it look like if you've got leaders who are actually given a model for how to coach, how to lead, how to manage, how to mentor, if they're actually given a simple model, a simple process, so that there's some consistency in how they're empowering and developing the team, you will see a complete difference in how these employees get engaged. So think about this. If you go back to every job you ever had from the time you were younger in high school and college, whatever, the times that you felt disengaged, almost always you can connect it back to a boss or a manager who themselves were disengaged or were not pouring into you, were not helping you to grow and develop and use your strengths, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, as an employee, you can't always tell what your manager is going through. But you certainly for yourself can say, I don't remember liking those people. I don't remember feeling loved by those people or, you know, respected by those people or uh, like an important member of the team or whatever, you know, however you relate to that. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. Are there any statistics that connect productivity and engagement? Yes. Because if you're talking about increasing engagement, I would imagine we're going to get an uptick in productivity. Absolutely. 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 So the statistics are all throughout the report, which is called the State of the American Workplace. And you can get that from the Gallup organization. And there is absolutely a direct link between engagement and productivity. And they have financial numbers tied to it as well. And and literally when I think sometimes what leadership needs to see is they need to really understand the impact of this conversation, Joel, and to understand how much money it's costing them in terms of productivity. But also, let's just talk about this. The most recent statistics show that 51% of our employees right now are actively seeking new employment. That's unbelievable. And that, that's very expensive. So it's expensive to have poor employees. It's expensive to get new employees. And, and yet we get new employees and we don't correct the problem that caused us to have to get new employees and have the bad productivity in the first place. It's costing a fortune. And so you think about that turnover at 51% of people actively seeking other employment. Think about what's happened with social media and recruiting efforts. Otherwise employers are now able to actually poach employees who are working. Like no longer do people want somebody who's out of a job, right? the best of the best employers and recruiters, they're looking for someone gainfully employed where they can pull them away from their job because they're already doing a great job. I'd rather you do a great job at my company rather than just looking for someone who's out of work. Correct? Yeah. So so this 51% number actually means something. And I want you to think about if over half of the people in your organization right now had their resume out on the street, What does that mean for your business? Well, you know what, what it means is that on a moment's notice, you could go upside down. Correct. You don't know when you're going to get the rug pulled out from under you. That's right. And especially identifying those key positions within the company, the key employees, the ones that would just kill you if you lost them. You know, are you investing enough, you know, time, effort, energy, and money developing those key people, right? Really pouring into them, managing, coaching, mentoring, developing. So this is your business, right? I mean, this is what you do. I mean, you're, you're an expert in all this engagement and kind of leadership and all this stuff, leading change. I've heard you say that before. Mm-hmm. Could you give us an example of a company you've worked with that started one way and 
kind of morphed into something else over time? How sure. long did it take? Give us like a little case story. Okay. Yeah, we can do a case study. It's fun. All right. So first of all, let me give the, the biggest picture theory of leadership. I truly believe that, and this comes from my dad. He's, he's poured this into me. Leadership is your ability to influence change because it doesn't take a leader to talk somebody into staying where they are. Mm. Right? We need growth. Okay. Yeah. okay. So when you think about leading change, I always start at the top level right? We start with the CEO and the senior leadership team or the executive team. And we go in and the very first thing that we do with them is we introduce them to themselves and then we introduce them to each other. And we do this through the leverage of an assessment. So, so we have an assessment that really helps people tap into strengths. This is an assessment that so far with everyone we've used it with, with every company, they've never taken it. They've never experienced it before. They've experienced parts of it, but not the full assessment. So I help them understand their behaviors, their communication preferences, their style, all the way down to their hidden motivators. What's the why behind why you want to take action? Because one thing I know for certain is if I can get the executive leadership team more heavily and intentionally focused in their strength zone, then I know that that's going to benefit all those who report to them, who work with and for them, right? So we start at that level and we go all the way down. I'll give you an example of a client who we have out of California since you're out in California. Yep. Started with the senior leadership team, introduced them to themselves and to each other. We had them do a communications exercise where we basically shared with them, here's how I want you to communicate with me. Here's how I don't want you to communicate with me. Every executive shared this with each other. And it all came from the assessment. And what's really interesting is the CEO found out in that conversation that he had been doing a communication don't with his CFO for 10 years time. You know, it's very interesting. In the old days, we had the telephone and we had U.S. mail. Yeah. That, that's kind of what we had for from the 1970s and before. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, then we start getting email and we get text and then we got messenger and we got WhatsApp and we got Facebook and we got, so we got a hundred different things. I do what you just said. I, I ask people, Hey, what's the best way for me to communicate with you? And I'll mark it down. I, I don't like email. I don't answer the phone. I prefer text messages. You know, I actually have a document for my clients that says, this is the best way to communicate with me. You know, I've got a link to my calendar for 15 minutes or more. If you see me for a minute, send me a text and I'll call you back. I mean, we all have to establish business rules. I'm very big on business rules because that's the way that you make money. And, and I think as individual people, we have the right to establish some rules too. So I think it's very respectful yeah. For, for the people you're talking to and for you to coach them into asking what people's preferences are. Absolutely. And so you think about it, if I'm communicating with you, Joel, I'm never going to send you an email that has paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of information. I'm going to give you the big picture. Here's what I want to share with you, or here's what I need from you and make it really, really easy for you to digest. Cause I know you're very fast paced, right? You move quickly. Yeah. You're, you're big picture, you're results oriented. You're like super achiever, right? So I kind of already know this about you. If you told me directly exactly how you wanted to communicate, no matter my communication preference, I would adapt to your style for the highest level of rapport and the best opportunity to influence, by the way. Now, are you talking about somebody going up the chain or down the chain? Yes. Which one? Both. Both. Here's why. So we call our theory dynamic adaptation. 
And it just goes like this. Every single human being is dynamic in how they want to be communicated with and what drives them to take action. So there's two different pieces. There's the how I show up and how I do things, how I communicate, but then there's the hidden why I do what I do. And think about this. If you're leading someone and you don't know this information, how can you possibly get the best out of this person? Yeah, especially that's a pretty simple question to ask someone. And, you know, one of the other things that I notice about this is that, well, we just have to ask. We just, I think it's respectful to ask mm-hmm. and, and we just, it's a good practice and it's, it an, it's a very easy thing to do. You know, there is one other point and that is that all this stuff kind of for many of us that are a little older evolved after we had already been taught how to use libraries as little children and didn't have computers as little kids. And then, so in the eighties and nineties, the computers start showing up. Nobody ever taught us how to build file systems. They didn't ever tell us how to communicate the way we're supposed to communicate. So we all kind of made up our own style and there's uh, hundreds of millions of us or billions and we all have billions of different styles. And that's one of the complexities is that we don't have like a common etiquette about the computer. And we don't have a common etiquette about communication. And because we didn't, and I don't know if they're teaching that to kids in school. I don't think so. Because I don't think that the teachers have a really good handle on it. But but I think that's part of what you're talking about is since there's not a master set of manners that you just ask each person, Hey, listen, how would you like me to work with that? I think that's fantastic. I mean, I endorse that so much. It's so simple, Joel, but most people will never do it. And, and think about this. In times of stress, we go into our habitual way of being and our habitual way of being is whatever it is. But in times of stress, it's usually not pretty. So, (laughs) so most people, when they're just in a stressful place, they don't even have the cognitive capacity to slow down enough to get intentional about how do I need to adapt to Joel to have the best conversation. And that's what it's all about is, is the more that you heighten this awareness, the more that you teach and you train people that every single human being is dynamic. And if we want the most out of them, use the leverage of a tool, like an assessment, learn it that quickly, have it up in front. Like, actually I'll show you, I've got mine right here in front of me, right? I've I've got my behaviors and I've got my motivators, the top ones that make me tick. It's on my husband's desk because he works with me every day and he needs to be mindful. I've got his on my desk so that I'm constantly remembering. I need to I need to be intentional when I'm communicating with him and not just take it for granted and speak the way I want to speak because it's completely the opposite of the way he wants to communicate. Interesting. This has really turned into a fascinating discussion that's so much bigger than leadership. It really does talk about the core of people and really what it takes to get people to move. There are so many different perspectives. That's what I love about this is that there's a lot of perspectives on leadership. Yours is a very fascinating perspective, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate being on the show with you. And, you know, I I have to say that I, I owe most of this, you know, line of thinking to my past when I was practicing law for about 10 years, I was a partner in the legislative and regulatory group, which is a really fancy way for saying I was a lobbyist. So I worked across the globe with some of the most, you know, arguably some of the most successful and influential people. And it wasn't just always the politicians. A lot of times it was the lobbyists who were lobbying the politicians. But I got to say, Joel, when I watched them with their uncanny ability to influence, what what it really, really boiled down to was their relationships. 
right? It's how they communicated with each other. It's the respect that they showed for each other. And I know that even saying the word lobbyist is so politically charged right now. Some people are just <laughs> totally tuned out. But, the, but you think about it, you strip all of the politics away and you just look at, you know, what is it that gets someone to move? Usually it's a mutual respect, right? And, and that's what we're talking about here is you just get to know someone well enough. You get to understand what's inside, what's beneath the surface. And if I can adapt to you to get the best out of you, to really get focused on your strengths, then I know I'm going to get someone who's engaged. That's, you know, that, that's awesome. And listen, you have absolutely given us the inside track on how to communicate better, how to lead better. And that's the way that our listeners are going to profit from the inside track, from the insights that you have, which is absolutely stellar. So thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your friendship. Thanks for having me, Joel. And I appreciate you too. And by the way, your information will be in the show notes. So uh, anybody who wants to get a hold of Heather is going to be able to find her easily. All right. So thanks very much. Thanks, Joel. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.